everyone. I'm joined today by the wonderful Joanne Lynham, who is an author and advocate for inclusion. So Joanne's book is called An Angel at My Door, and it's about a mother's fight for her daughter to live to her potential. And if I just read for you three lines from the back of the book, do we value quality of life for people with disability? Do we see the rich gifts that people with disability offer us individually and as a society? To be blunt, no, we don't, and it's time for change. So welcome, Joanne. Thanks, Chrissy. Thank you. So would you like to share a bit about yourself and your journey so far? Yeah, I think um, I would say that I have had a very blessed life, despite the fact that I'm obviously like everyone. Um, it hasn't always been a life of sunshine. There's big challenges, but I'm very blessed because um, at the right time, the right people have come into my life. To, to help me or the right book or the right information which is has been um uh perfect the other thing i would say is that um i look back over my life and i see the perfection of destiny so when i was a little girl i would have been about nine in fact i think i was nine and i was at uh, school and every in a, a catholic school and every year we used to have this visitor by a man called the Holy Man. Now, I don't know if he was holy or not, but we called him that. But he sold religious things, you know, rosary beads and pictures. And uh, so we'd all go along with our, our pocket money and buy something. And I walked into his little van this year when I was about nine. And I was transfixed by a picture of a little black baby being watched over by a black angel. And I couldn't see anything else in the van and I bought that little picture and um, took it home to my mother and she said well what you buy that for interestingly that that picture has stayed with me and I had no concept of it the role of that until we were um, in the process of adopting our first child Roshan from Sri Lanka and I remembered the picture and and dug it out of boxes and put it into his little nursery and it, it sits in my meditation room today. And I kind of feel like that, that nine-year-old girl who walked into that caravan, for a second I saw a glimpse of my future. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have understood any of that at the time, mm -hmm. but it was like a little peek into it. You know? I might so, have to get my tissues because I feel like crying already. <laughs> don't do that. Oh, so I cried a lot reading your book, actually. Um, and the thing is, I feel the same thing happened to me when I was 10 years old. I uh, wrote a poem and I pinned it up on the inside of my um, my cupboard at home. Uh, and it said, um, I sit here watching day by day, my life before me pass away. And even though no one else can see, at least I know my spirit's free. Oh, wow. So how did I know that at 10, 11 years of age? And how do you know that? You don't know how you know, but you know. Yes. Something greater than you was at work kind of going, it's okay, Chrissy. Yes. You got this. Even yes. I you got it. Yeah. Yes. And I love those moments where something much greater than me comes in with something and it, whoa. Where yes. It yeah. Yes. That's wonderful. So I know that you live in Townsville in North Queensland, Australia. Uh, hmm. How did you end up here? How did we end up here? Well, um, my husband took a, a position with uh, Placer Dome 
mining company in Papua New Guinea. Mm -hmm. Their headquarters was Cairns, but my parents and I had were living here and I had cousins here and aunts and uncles. Mm -hmm. So it seemed like a um, a better fit mm -hmm. to have you know family here and my, mm -hmm. my sons would have family. Mm -hmm. um, and we were coming for a three-year contract and that right. was 30 years ago. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. So it turned into a 30-year um, yeah. stint. <laughs> and obviously you raised uh, your daughter Emma here, which you talk about Emma in the book. So would you like to just share with us a little bit about Emma? Yeah, Emma is... Um, Emma was an amazing gift in my life. Yeah, uh, Long since stopped thinking that I would have a child. Um, in fact, having a child of my own was not a huge priority. Having children in my life was huge, and I knew I wanted to be a mum, but I also knew that they didn't have to look like me. I wasn't attached to it, had to be mine. It wasn't, that wasn't my thing. Um, so having a child come into my life that was biological was interesting, and I knew at precisely exactly nine weeks and three days that my baby girl had Down syndrome because I saw it in meditation really, really clear in the vision that I was giving birth and somebody else was helping me, though I didn't see who, and they held a little baby up in front of me and I could see that she had Down syndrome. And in that moment, I felt incredibly still and peaceful in a way I never felt before. And I had previously been in an ashram at the feet of a girl and I did not feel that stillness that I felt in my little meditation room. It was just beautiful, that sense of love, of being held, of being cared for. And as, as if the whole universe just went oh, and held his breath. Mm -hmm. What will she do? Mm -hmm. And I knew that this is the child I'm having. It mm -hmm. was a child, and she has Down syndrome. Mm -hmm. and child I'm supposed to have. Mm -hmm. And I sometimes look back and think, imagine if I had made a different choice. Mm -hmm. You know? Mm -hmm. Of course, that was never an option. That mm. was this is the child I'm supposed to have. This mm -hmm. is perfection. And mm. she's she's you know a beautiful young woman now, twenty eight, um, living a wonderful life with her own business and her own property, um, traveling and planning to do some more travel as we mm. speak. Yes, <laughs> she's big on travel. Um, not sure where she got that bug from. Certainly not from her mother, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, she's planning a trip to Canada next year. Mm, awesome. To join um, a, a young man called Ragu, who mm -hmm. was a support worker to work with her in her business when we got a bit of funding and I got out of the road. Um, they formed a very special bond. And even though he's no longer here, um, they still chat and, and she still thinks of him. So when he just casually said to her recently, you should come to Canada. We can have beers, Emma. And she was like, yes, yes. And she signed to me, yes, yes. And I laughed and thought, oh, that's lovely. But she kept talking about it. And then I realised, oh, my goodness. Mm -hmm. It's happening. Yeah, she actually wants to do this. She has been to Japan and other places. So Canada doesn't seem like such a stretch, really, does it? She went to Japan in 2017. Mm -hmm. Had an absolute blast. Mm -hmm. She went to New Zealand in 2019 um, and was a guest speaker. Mm -hmm. at uh, a disability expo then that led to an invitation to Auckland to speak to 
what started out as a group of about five families and wound up being about 20 families um, about her business and whatever. And of course, she had a holiday while she was there. Yeah, checked out New Zealand. So, yeah, why not? That's wonderful. So, you know that I've read your book and I'm a fan of it, and not because it's a story about a child with disability. I'm a fan of your book because it helps helped me helps other people understand the power of advocacy mm-hmm. and I, that's a word that I've spoken with you personally a lot about because for me when we understand how to advocate for someone or we understand when we haven't been advocated for in a time of need it's a very powerful tool and it's not something that we necessarily learn or get taught no, but it's no. a super super special skill and your book for me highlights the power of advocacy for someone for the whole of their life and we never we always need to advocate for ourselves we need to advocate for our children often we'll need to advocate for our parents and and other loved ones too so it's really important to explain in detail the importance of, of advocacy would you do you feel now that that was a theme that you wanted to bring out or it just came out naturally if, I, if I'm truly honest, it's not something that I sat down and thought about and laid out. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think it just naturally flowed. It, it, mm-hmm. it just naturally flowed. Um, and I can recall reading um, about the second draft or after it had gone to the editor and come back. And, and I felt myself that um, advocacy was sort of weaving its way through this book, along with things like resilience and purpose. Um, but, yeah. Advocacy is important, and I, I think I was being an advocate uh, when my boys were little, but I wouldn't have necessarily acknowledged that that's what I was doing at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, when you just can't imagine that um, you adopt this beautiful little baby who's only seven weeks old, and he's so beautiful with these eyes that are so dark that you just literally fall into them, mm-hmm. and then that others don't see your child in the same way. Mm-hmm. Others see your child as some kind of threat, mm-hmm. as some kind of um, something to be feared, mm-hmm. something quite right. And that um, that happened for me with within probably weeks of him coming home. I had gone, we'd gone every Sunday to the same hot bread shop and bought hot bread. Mm-hmm. And so I was there one Sunday with him on my hip at the same shop waiting to be served by a girl I went to school with my whole life. We had been in school together. We chatted every Sunday, but suddenly she didn't want to chat. And in fact, mm-hmm. she was bouncing around customers around me to not serve me. Well. And the actually said, oh, this lady was here before me. And she went, oh, no, you're right. Oh. Okay, that's fine. There's, you're not the only hot bread shot. I'm off. Mm-hmm. And it was, I mean, I got to the car and I cried. And, and um, you know, there were other things when we moved to a smaller community. And by this stage, we had our second son. And um, we were at the pool one day. And there was hardly anyone there, just us and about three or four other families. And the lady who, who managed the pool came and spoke to me and she said, Oh, Joe, I'm really sorry, but we've had a complaint. And I was like, what? 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 We, the boys weren't even like jumping into the pool they were quietly climbing down the stairs and she said oh there's been a complaint that um because your children are from Sri Lanka they could spread infection people don't want them in the pool yeah and it was 
comments like that that were made in a small community where I realised not only do I need to stand up for my children, mm -hmm. I, I need to show this community why this is not okay. Mm -hmm. I need to value everyone. And an opportunity came then with a, a desire to have a, a big shade pergola because mm -hmm. it was the preschool. Mm -hmm. And so I happened to be on committee and I proposed that we have a multicultural food fair and everyone laughed and went, oh, there's no one here, just you. I said, well, no, that's not true. There's a Cambodian family here. Oh, yeah, but we never see them. But they're here. Mm -hmm. and they're here. Yeah. And so I spoke to the preschool teacher and said, I'm sure that if you talk to the children and ask the children to go home and talk to their families about where do we come from? We will find lots of interesting cultural threads. Sure enough, right on cue, kids came back to school. My family came from, you know, da 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 da. And then the teacher invited them to bring something to talk about. Mm -hmm. So then we had something to build upon. Long story mm -hmm. short, Multicultural Food Fest raised all the money in one night mm -hmm. and we to build upon. You know, people came together, which to me was more important. People shared food, shared ideas, and came together in mm -hmm. the spirit of that project. Mm -hmm. that working for the same purpose, to have something safe and cool for our children, you know? And yeah. so that's kind of my way of, um, of manage, managing that, was to get involved, to, to be involved with everything to do with children, mm -hmm. and to keep talking about inclusion. Why does it matter? So we had... Open house every Saturday night. I would cook curry and anyone could come. Mm -hmm. So you adopted two young boys. One was a tiny baby and one was a little bit older from Sri Lanka. What year was that? Those We adopted Roshan as a seven-week-old baby in 1984. Mm -hmm. We adopted Luxury, um, age not known precisely, um, because he was an abandoned child with no birth record. Mm -hmm. um, it was presumed at the time that he was somewhere around two. Mm -hmm. sure. um, this, the circumstances of his life. Mm -hmm. And then you went on to have Emma how many years after that? Ten. Ten, Ten years, years later. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Unplanned, unexpected. Mm -hmm. And along came Miss Emma. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and having those three children who've each had their own form of trauma or exclusion throughout their life like how does what's the fabric or the currency within your family yeah that that yeah, that's a really good question um it, it's lovely for me as a mom to watch um my two older sons who are now 38 and, and 36 watch them understand and talk the talk of inclusion and just naturally understand why that matters to watch them with their friends and see that um, uh, colourful mix of people in their lives of, of all different backgrounds. And, and I think that that is a wonderful legacy to leave my sons and my daughter, that all people's lives matter. Mm -hmm. The package that they're in is irrelevant. It's irrelevant. Mm -hmm. This lifetime I happen to be in, in a white, wearing a white coat, yeah? Yes. Um, but I believe in other lifetimes I've had other coats and I'll mm -hmm. have again, you know? It's not who I am. So why be so terribly attached to it? Because yeah. it's, it's not it's not that important. But rather, um, the essence of my spiritual 
being is what matters, not how I present. So that goes one step further. So if a person you know, is in a wheelchair and can't use the legs, or has cerebral palsy and has lots of other challenges, or like Emma has Down syndrome and autism and is born deaf with cleft palate and very, very limited communication, you know, that presence of something far greater is what beats my heart, it beats yours, mm-hmm. but it beats hers. Mm-hmm. It, beats, it beats in the body of every person of colour. Mm-hmm. We don't have to sit here and go, keep eating, keep eating, keep eating. Oh, need my hair to grow, need my hair to grow, want it to be long. Oh, need my thing. Those things automatically happen. You know, how how is that possible without us consciously doing it? We don't need to. They're taken care of. Yeah. If that's happening, it, it, then doesn't that say that all lives are of equal value to that greater presence or whatever name you want to give it, spirituality, consciousness, God, whatever, that all life is important? Yes. You know, it, it's... Yeah, it's kind of interesting to me to um to place so much emphasis on the outside coating of someone. What's inside matters, not the outside. That's so true. And you gave us an insight into having to advocate for your ch- children because of their colour. But when did you really step into your power or realise that you alone had the power to advocate for your children? Like, Was there a defining moment or was it a subtle there was, thing? There was a very defining moment. Um, a painful moment when Emma was born. She was just, um, you know, uh, 24 hours old and had uh, 32 weeks to have major surgery because she was born with a duodenal atresia. I grew up in a family with a mum who was a nurse. So great respect for all things medical trust, but the doctor says "That's that's how I still believed at that point. And so... Surgery went well, and then Emma had a bleed and crashed a short time afterwards. And I was told um, that we won't resuscitate her again because she's got a disability. And in that moment, there was a a seismic shift. Something shifted in me, physically mm-hmm. and emotionally, and in every way. Mm-hmm. My sense and my fear was she's not safe here mm-hmm. I cannot leave my daughter here she is not safe mm-hmm. so I literally stayed in intensive care for about six hours until mm-hmm. I was given an assurance mm-hmm. that whatever it took because I want my daughter mm-hmm. at about one in the morning sit beside me and say Mrs London why don't you go home and get on with your life leave her here I'm sure we can find somewhere to put her again Confirming to me within a matter of seven hours, twice, she is not worthwhile, she is not worthy. And in that moment, I knew I need to be on the lookout. I need to safeguard my daughter's life. She is, yes. you know. And then, of course, dealing with community attitudes. Mm-hmm. Very confronting, like, what? What? Like, um, she loved music, loved music. And at the time, um, she had a what's called a parapodium, a standing frame made by the uh, physio at the hospital. It was a like 
a weird looking contraption that was quite challenging to get her in. And once you got her in and got her standing, um, she didn't like it. So listening to music and watching things like wiggles and stuff was a way to distract her. Mm-hmm. But, you know, she really does like music. Let's take that a step further. Mm-hmm. There was a little music group advertised. So um, I didn't say my daughter had a disability. I just rang up and booked her in. And, mm-hmm. went. and um, the teacher was most confronted. Your daughter has a disability. And I almost said, really? Nobody told me, you know, but I decided not to be a smarty. Um, but one day, one of the other children had a birthday and her mum gave a whole pile of invitations to the, to the music teacher to hand out at the end of class. And so she diligently handed out these invitations. And of course, there was no invitation for Emma. And the teacher was embarrassed and said, well, you know, I wouldn't have handed them out if I'd known that the mother was going to do that. And she must have said something to that mum because the following week, that mum said, oh, I hope you weren't offended that I didn't give Emma an invitation. I just didn't think she'd enjoy a birthday party. To which, you know, my comment was, well, who doesn't like cake? Yes. And and birthdays, what child doesn't like a birthday? Yes. You know, and then the real advocacy for me stepped up with school. Mm -hmm. My sons were in a school. And for me, naturally, I just felt like, well, that's the ideal place for me. It's a regular school. She would hear normal speech. She would see normal play. And I had experienced that in playgroup in kindy, that she watched other kids carefully. And she learned more from what you do than what you say, and she still does. Mm-hmm. To be very careful. It's not about what they're telling her, but what they're doing. She's learning mm. and copying. Mm-hmm. And so I knew this would be good for her, but I also knew she would be a great gift to the school. Mm-hmm. A child sitting beside Emma, who's just your regular kid, who knows how to write the letter A and then ultimately go on to write Apple and you know do all sorts of things, is watching this person beside them struggle to do something as simple as write the letter yes. A. Yes, yes. That's a great teacher of of patience, of tolerance, of empathy. Mm. Can't have a lesson today. We're going to talk about today. We're going to learn about empathy. Yes, yes. Compassion and empathy, those things are are taught through life itself. Mm. For me, it was a great opportunity for the whole school to Mm. value it in Emma Um, and that who knows where that person that sat beside her in year one might go on Mm. and imagine, you know, their understanding that they will have. Yes. But one of the biggest challenges was... um, at the school, they were having a welcome dinner and we were invited because we were a new family to the school. And um, they had members of the committee welcoming people. And we, when we arrived, it was like we were, it's like we were contagious or something. Right. Parted like the Red Sea. Suddenly, everybody was looking and busy doing something else. Mm-hmm. So, so welcome, you must be the Lionham family. Yes. Like that. And so they had these great big round tables that sat 10 people. Mm-hmm. Little table, little family of five sitting completely on our own. Mm. No one the welcome committee came to say, hi, welcome. Mm. Is, is everything okay? Can we help with anything? And it was my son, Roshan, who, who said, mom, let's go. They don't want us here. Mm. Go. 
because I've read your book and because we've spoken, you know, outside of this conversation, like I just feel so immensely sorry and hurt on your behalf of what you've had to experience for the last 38 years. I like, I feel it's disgusting. And, um, you know, the first time you have to advocate for your child is when she's the day she's born and everyone's happy to let her die. Yeah. Uh, and and then going forward, you know, the narrow-mindedness of people, the small-mindedness of people, it's a battle, you know, mm. and it's kind of a gruesome battle because, you know, even in my own life I deal with small-mindedness a lot and it's it can be really confronting and also quite frightening. Mm. Yeah, it is. It is because um, I look, you know, my sons are fine. They're, 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 they've got their own lives and they're happy. They're adults. Um, so when I leave them behind, they're settled, they've got their life. But the frightening part is to leave Emma behind mm-hmm. in a world that you know is aggressive towards her, is not necessarily mm-hmm. welcoming. So it, it kind of feels like my life's work to to help break down those barriers about who people really are. And having had the experience of, of as a mum, being crushed by people rejecting my son or not wanting their son to come and play mm-hmm. based on my son's colour. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, is that 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 was just soul destroying. Mm-hmm. So having both of those kind of experiences is is wonderful. It's a great gift because mm-hmm. it puts me to be eyes wide open and see all of the all of the people that often aren't seen and just mm-hmm. Um, everyone's got gifts, everyone's got talents to share, you know. Um, and for many people with disability, their their way of seeing, their way of being is in itself the gift. Mm. A great way of looking, not necessarily at it this way or this way, but straight through it in an mm. entire way. That's, mm. a, that's a fabulous mm. gift. Mm. Those insights, you, you know, um, yeah, and I would think with the way the world is right now, we we would want all of the talent that we can get. Yes, and I would think, unfortunately, we need more role models like that. You know, like I try to role model to my girls that when there's someone in front of me with a disability, I'm only talking to that person's face, you know, and I'm engaging with that person as a person as opposed to, you know, sometimes my children will say, oh, mommy, what's wrong with that person's eye or that person's arm? And so we kind of, we can break that down and we can talk about it, but I never want them to see that I am ever, and and I don't feel uncomfortable with people with disabilities because I also have um, a disabled person in my own family. But it's almost just about normalising things, you know. And when we first moved back to Australia, I've had the joy of living and working in many countries and seeing children of all colour, shapes and sizes and family dynamics and that family currency and that common thread that makes us all human. You know, we were we were at a restaurant and um, there was a man who didn't have any food and he would, had the shakes, so he obviously was suffering with some withdrawals you could tell he was hungry and so I just gathered up some of our food and I put it on the table next to us and invited him to sit down and eat and the girls said to me mommy why are you giving that man our food and I said well because he's hungry Mm. you know 
there's no other reason other than there's a person that's hungry and then he couldn't open the tomato sauce sachet to put it on his chips so I got up and I served him the tomato sauce on the food that I'd just given him and I you know for me that's a natural thing to do because I'm not looking at that person as a derelict I'm looking at that person as a human and I want those my girls to see everyone as human do you know what I mean you want them to see that your compassion the empathy that yeah. you beyond what you think you see yes I think you see someone with a disability but if that's all you see you're not actually seeing anything you're not then look again yes and look again yes you know? there's a great line from a sanskrit text um a guru gita in india and it says neti neti not this not this look again look again yes and it was something that came to me often dealing with with emma and issues with yes it's not this look again look again and for me that applies to anyone that i meet whether they have a mental illness um or, or you know like we were at a shopping center a, a few weeks ago my husband and i were just walking down the aisle just talking and this man was walking towards us really purposefully really striding very purposefully and he came right up to me and chatted to me and um wanted to shake my hand he didn't know me from Adam I didn't know him and um and then he said you know I'm really hungry I said are you um what if, what what have you got to eat and he said nothing and I said well we're going to have a cuppa and and probably get a sandwich or something do you want to join us and my husband's you know sort of what's going on and uh, so we took this man that I that we then discovered had, had um he identified that he had schizophrenia and um, that kind of thing happens a lot. Yes. And and my husband always has lots of jokes about that. How they find you. People yeah. in need find you. Yes. We'll just yeah, come out of the woodwork. Yeah. But, you know, I actually think that that's, um, that's, yeah, yeah. But one of the most powerful things for me in terms of advocacy, um, well, well, there were two things. One was a role that I took on with the Justice Department. Um, as a human rights advocate across mental health disability. So I was a community visitor. So I was um, told at our initial training by the public advocate that all of you going out for the first time, you are my eyes and my ears. I can't get into these places, that's your job. So I need you to tell me what you see, what you hear. I need you to watch, to observe and come back with that. And so it was like um like an epiphany for me that role. It it brought forth lots of ways of thinking and advocating and looking at things and thinking, that's actually really not good. Mm -hmm. That is awful, you know. And then it was a few years later that I discovered the way I'd been working, the way I had been talking about how people look, the way you're devaluing them mm -hmm. by respectful to the community like that mm -hmm. was actually part of a concept called social role valorization. Mm -hmm. That's now um, that if you like, if you like, that's uh, that's the bedrock of Emma's life. Mm -hmm. you, you know, so one of the things that that I think is really important for families is to understand that you might buy a lovely piece of land at the beach. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't rock up today on your lovely block of land just start whacking up walls. No, first of all, you're going to find where's the bedrock and put down a solid foundation so that house doesn't slide into the ocean. 
Mm -hmm. Exactly the same for a person with a disability. No matter mm -hmm. how they are, start with that foundation. Mm -hmm. And their looks to me like a great foundation because it's looking beyond what you think you see. Mm -hmm. At um, well, social role is the key thing. What are the roles? So mm -hmm. we all have roles in our life. You know, I have the role of a mother, a neighbor, a friend, a sister, a cousin. Um, I have the role of uh, you know a shopper. Lots of those kinds of roles. And we've all got those roles. But there are other roles that are far more empowering. Things like the role of an advocate, the role of a business owner, the role. And so for me, that is really important to establish those roles for Emma. So she has a number of roles as in the business owner, the boss, um, uh, public speaker. Um, Sister change maker and then she's got all those natural informal roles like daughter sister cousin friend yep. neighbor all of those kinds of things mm. so those valuable roles change a person's life because they change how people see her mm. um work i knew was going to be really powerful that if she just sat at home here nothing good was going to happen and even though we'd been to disability employment providers who literally to my face said, Mrs. Lynham, you're not being realistic. Your daughter will never work. Why don't you just put her in a day service? Mm -hmm. Just tell you what I told them to do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Needless to say, I'm sure you get the picture. And for me, I knew that she needed to. She needed to contribute to her community. If you're not contributing, you're not known. If yes. You can't belong. If yes. You don't, you don't matter. So yes. It goes around. It goes around. You know. Yes. So that for me was pivotal to find a way for her to contribute, so she's visible, so she she has a role that matters. Yes. And then of course the knock on of that is that that instilled great confidence. Having the opportunity to tell her story um, was just I watering to watch the shift in her to have her story validated and mm -hmm. that is very powerful and that mm -hmm. shifted her confidence took off and that's when she started yeah we started to talk to her about moving out of home talk about holidays talk about making decisions for herself mm -hmm. do those things and I look at her now and just kind of go yeah you got this girl yeah so was writing the book painful for you? Was a process healing? It was both, actually. There were some parts um, that were were painful. Probably mm. some of the hardest part to write was actually writing about Luxury's adoption. Mm -hmm. Adoption was very, very, very challenging mm -hmm. uh, just because of bureaucrats and, and because we were travelling and a war zone and because of the volatility within Sri Lanka at the time because of the civil war um and because of the situation that he was in mm -hmm. one of the things that was hardest for me to write and I actually reached a point one day where I was sitting here at the computer and I was sobbing and I said oh, I can't do this I can't do this I'm, I'm just going to leave it out it doesn't matter it's too painful mm -hmm. and at that last moment uh, a really good friend of mine rang and she said look how's it all going and I was still crying. And she said, oh, what's wrong, what's wrong? And I told her and she said, just write your truth, John. And she left it at that. Mm -hmm. And that just 
tongue. And so I pulled it together and I and I wrote my truth. And then mm. when I ultimately got the draft back and you know corrections and things from the editor and looked and thought, I'm so pleased I did that because yeah. it helped me to step back from the pain of it. Yes. Yeah. You know, a bit like if if I put a blindfold on you and I took you into a beautiful art gallery and I put you right up against a painting and I said, okay, take the blindfold off. What is it, Chrissy? And you'd be, oh, well, I can smell dust and paint. I can see colours. I'll take a step back, Chrissy. And you step back. Oh, I still can't see. Or I get right back to the other side of the wall. Oh, it's a beautiful Monet. Yes. Oh, it's a famous painting. When you're too close, you can't see it. Yes. For me, having the opportunity to write it and step back and step back from it allowed me to then be able to be at peace with, with, with the whole thing rather than still be upset and, and traumatised by it all. Yes. You also shared some pretty other painful details of your life in the book, and I, I'm guessing that you hadn't put those down on paper before either. No, I hadn't. No. And to so be honest... Was a book a process a bit of grieving as well, do you think? Like, do you, were you able to grieve for yourself during the process? Um, I I don't think that I really needed to. So you're alluding to the first part of the book where I talk about um, being a young music student in an industry in the 70s that was very male-dominated and very, uh, girls don't play drums. Uh, yes. No, you just don't. And that one night at the end of the gig I was raped and, and badly beaten and left unconscious in a car park so I mean that had the capacity to define me and put me in a box for forever as a victim mm -hmm. for a very long time I will admit that I was I lived in fear mm -hmm. I wouldn't move into this house I wouldn't move into anything unless it was lots of locks mm -hmm. if, you know the lock could keep me safe yes but I had that perception and it was, um, that was the driving force, I think, behind my spiritual journey was looking for peace. Yes. For someone or something to take it away. Yes. And it, ultimately, of course, I learned that I had to own it. Yes. Or I could yeah, be free of it. So I'd long done that before I came to writing about it. But I will be honest and say that, I put it in and then I took it out and I put it in and I took it out. So there were several backwards and forwards with the editor and she one day said, Joe, what is going on? You've got it in there, you've taken it out, you put it in, you take it out. What is what are you doing? And I ended up crying and said, I just I don't know. I feel really vulnerable about sharing this. I'm not sure about this. And and she said, I understand that. That's a really scary thing to do. But I think it's powerful and I think you should leave it in. And then the day that I actually received my first box of books. They were printed, they arrived in a box, and I opened it and kind of, oh God, oh God, you know, knowing what was in it, you know, that, that some people would possibly judge because of putting that in there. But, you know, I thought, no, I'm not going to hide from that anymore. Because mm -hmm. whilst it was a dreadful thing, would I like to go back and do it again? How long? The things I learned from it, through it, were valuable. Would I like it to have had another way to learn it? God, yes. Yes. But that's the way that I chose to learn it. Yeah. You know? And 
So yes, it, it um I own it now and I'm I'm okay with it. Mm-hmm. Gonna make whatever judgment about it. That's okay. So you're an ambassador for social change in our community, inclusion and acceptance. And so firstly, I want to ask, do you get fatigued sometimes? And secondly, I want to ask, what do you hope to, as a vision for your upcoming event, The Many Faces of Townsville? Yeah, I get tired. We all do. Um, and, yeah, I get physically tired sometimes. But I never get tired of the work that I'm doing yeah? mm-hmm. um, because it actually... It actually energizes me um, when it's when it's going along, and even those moments when it feels like, oh, here we go, here's another brick wall. Um, there's something about all of that understanding, and recently coming to an understanding to know that in my lifetime I will not see the results of this work. Mm-hmm. That will not happen in my lifetime. These mm-hmm. kinds of changes are sometimes multi generational. Yeah. I'm not standing on the edge of a revolution. I'm watching a slow evolution. And mm-hmm. I can change already from um, years ago when battling schools and community attitudes towards Emma. There's a huge shift in that. That's huge. Yes. Shift has changed a great deal. Does that mean we're there yet? No. We still have work to do for sure. And you know, for me, no, I, I won't see the results. But it doesn't mean that I don't keep doing the work. Mm. Just keep doing the work, not expecting to see, oh, it's going to change everything. No, it won't. So my event that you were speaking about, the many faces of towns, well, again, um, this won't change the world. I know this. And I'm not intending to change the world. Yeah. I'm simply putting out there an idea. What if... We listened to stories. Stories are powerful, you know. I looked um, at stories and loved stories all my life in that when I was a a kid at school, um, when the nuns would be banging on and and bashing the Bible into me, I would be not listening. But when Mm -hmm. they pulled the book out and started to read about the lives of saints and their, you know, great courage, I was listening. I was all ears. Likewise, in my spiritual journey, different paths, it was when spiritual teachers have used stories that have stayed with me, that have allowed me to remember the the teaching through the story and shift. So I think stories are powerful. And I watched with Emma, having her story told in a national platform changed her life. Yes. Changed who she thought she was. Yes. That's, yeah. And you know, all all stories, all stories matter. So for me, um, the person telling their story, it empowers them to tell the story, to struggle through the hurt of it, the pain of it, but still tell it. That empowers them to see themselves in a bigger way beyond the story. The person listening is empowered because they're invited on a journey and they're invited to see themselves in a bigger way. Can I accept and embrace this person? And that's an amazing thing to do. Mm. So, yes, I want to tell um, many faces of Townsville is, is inviting to hear a different way of looking at success. Mm-hmm. So lots of platforms around that celebrate people who are successful. Mm-hmm. Um, that's wonderful. 
And that's a different measure of success that a business has risen to the top, made a lot of money, perhaps there's been a lot of awards. But I'm talking about people who haven't won awards, they haven't made a lot of money, they haven't risen anywhere. In fact, they're very often invisible. But they're the stories that I think are rich stories. And mm -hmm. so I agree. Yeah, I want to um, I want to open the community to hear those stories. You know, you don't have to agree with it. Yeah, just listen. I agree. I believe that the people who motivate me most in life are the everyday people around me, or the people who are. Um, you know, they're not, I'm not inspired by famous people. I'm not inspired by successful people. I'm inspired by people who are, who are wholehearted, who are grafting, mm. who are challenged, who've overcome significant obstacles. And most times, as you say, they are invisible. And that's why people that I most try to highlight through my podcasting and my YouTube is through really people who nobody knows them. Mm. Um, but they're doing great work in amazing ways. And it's those great stories that, you know, I'm a storyteller and I love sharing stories. And I think embracing stories is one way that, you know, people find their voice, their ability to heal, and we can overcome things quicker as humanity, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. It's um, it's a powerful way to, to shift attitudes and ideas. Mm. Yes, um, I agree. Um, if I was given the opportunity today to sit down with someone and talk to them, it, I wouldn't choose a famous person. I wouldn't choose a wealthy person. I don't care how you made your money. I'm mm -hmm. not interested in your money. I don't care how you made it. You know. But what I'd like to hear from some of those people is, what do you think will matter as you're taking your last breath? Yes. I'll take any of that money with you. And yes. then the woods will go with you. So what will go with you? Yes. And for me, what will go with me is is those stories, is those lives that touched me and the lives that I touched. That's that's what matters because we're here for a short time, not, you know. So, yeah, I always find that really interesting that our societies are very geared to to um, praising and worshipping people who've made lots of money and risen to the top. And, yes. You know, um, yeah, I, I want to tell the other stories of those people who are still quietly swimming at the bottom of the pond. <laughs> Well, Is I think really that, that could be a title for you, another book. What will you what will go with you? I've yeah. written that down for you. What will go with you? Yeah, well, it's sort of similar to the title that I'm thinking of for my second book, which mm. is um, What We Leave Behind. Yes. So it's a collaborative story. It's a collaborative book with, with other mothers. And I very much want to hear the stories. Uh, for example, I'm going to be interviewing a, an African mum who was in a refugee camp with a child with cerebral palsy. Mm -hmm. wow. So I hear that story of courage, yes. that what keeps you going yes. in a refugee camp when hope does not look like it's even on the horizon. Yes. Um, and there's another story of a, a mum from the Philippines who had a child in school and the school was saying all the right things, but mum's intuition was that all is not right. So she put a recording device in her child's pocket, unbeknownst to the child. What she heard was just awful. Mm -hmm. The way in which the child was spoken to, the way in which all of the children in that special unit were spoken to. Oh. So, you know, they're the stories I want to hear, stories that nobody's heard before, um, to celebrate 
the role of those mums in the life of a person with a disability. Mm. So, yeah, it's a collaborative journey um, mm. of, of stories of people. So, and for me, it's always about what will it look like when I'm gone? Yes. Who will do this when I'm gone? Who will know this when I'm gone? So the book for me is leaving, leaving a trail, if you like. I'm leaving a trail of breadcrumbs through the forest. Yes. Through the forest of bureaucrats for yeah. other families to follow. Yeah. Don't be worried about those dark shadows called bureaucrats. Ignore them. Just follow the trail. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That sounds like a really powerful book. I can't wait to read it and share it. Thank you for joining me today. Is there anything that you'd like to share as your your farewell? Because I'm going to put the notes to um in the notes for the this audio I'll put um, the link to your website and where people can get a copy of your book anything else you'd like to share um no not really just um be open to to the value of people everyone has a value we are we're all here for a reason you know you don't have to do great deeds you don't have to be um you know win gold medals to be worthy you're here, you're worthy, that's enough. That's really beautiful because I'm, you know, I just hosted a wellness retreat on the weekend and, you know, I have women and mums tell me that they don't love themselves. Mm. And, you know, it's that's a kind of its own epidemic, epidemic in, a, in a way, isn't it? It is of that sense of not being good enough because you're not thin enough because you can't keep the house just perfect and you can't do it. All of those other things mm. don't have to. Mm. Yeah, you're enough. Yeah. Beautiful well, just where you are. Thank you for being a voice of reason in our jaded society. I'm grateful for that. <laughs> and I always enjoy chatting with you um, and your candidness. So thank you so much. And I will talk to you again soon. Thanks very much, Chris. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.